I think learning um, to develop for VR and AR was like my own personal therapy. I used to be a perfectionist. So it's, it has helped me to make peace with this 80% is perfect. I have worked with it a couple of years and I would by no means say that I'm close to understanding or knowing or being able to use all of it. It makes me always think about who could benefit from this. How could this be interesting um, in a long term and in a bigger project and where it influences more people. Welcome to the Digital Doha Podcast, our brand new series focused on bringing listeners topical segments and informative conversations with local experts, exploring the cutting edge of emerging media happening in the dynamic international capital that is Doha, as well as the greater Middle East. I'm your co-host, Spencer Stryker, digital media professor at Northwestern University in Qatar. And I'm joined by my co-host, Natasha Das, media information and technology student at NUQ. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Digital Doha podcast. Mariam Rafai is a practice-based researcher in interdisciplinary design and emergent technologies. In her work, she employs various skills such as virtual reality and augmented reality development, along with other skills such as analog design, digital fabrication, and physical computing. Her most recent work focuses on design strategies for AR and VR application and education. She is currently an adjunct professor at Northwestern and Virginia Commonwealth University in Qatar, and she has over 10 years of experience working in the industry, where she has worked with telecom companies such as Uvidu and Vodafone. So, please join me in introducing our third guest of the season, Miriam. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. took it from ancient to super modern essentially <laughs> yeah so um they were completely open to it um obviously because it's virtual reality it's best suited for um creating um experiences that are not easy to have and because pearl diving is such an integral part of the qatari history but it's essentially um it doesn't happen anymore right people don't go pearl diving anymore or pearl right. fishing anymore um, and because it's also very dangerous. So this is something so hugely part of their history, but not done anymore. And students were learning about it in this very abstract form. See. And this was a way for them to really experience what that was like, um, that a diver had to really dive 40 meters on a breath, um, collect pearl oysters, not all of them had pearls in them and then what was really interesting um, and that I had to learn during this project what was really interesting is that depending on the size of the pearl pearls actually because they were so important in Qatar they had specific names for each of these pearls depending uh, on their size and their qualities so yeah okay that's a really great use of VR thinking about what are the types of media challenges in which VR basically play its affordances play the best. And in this case, like you said, 
it's dangerous to do. It's a lost and ancient art form of yep. pearl diving. And so essentially by creating this immersive simulation, you're able to bring it back, let people experience this ancient process. So what is your research like for something like that? I mean, did you go pearl diving yourself? Did you go try to, you know, go to the locations where you pearl dive? Did you interview people? Is it a lot of, you know, is it a lot of just using your imagination? What's your, what's your process for creating that? So because I was working with Qatar Museums, they were essentially um, my source. Um, they had all the information about it because it was part of the curriculum already and they had pre prepared this already. I did go one extra mile and I found um, a pearl diver in Sukhwake that was really happy to talk about his pearl diving days and stories and, uh, and had pictures and everything. So that made me realize how much pride there was associated with it, which was really interesting. I couldn't integrate everything that I wanted to in this experience. We kept it kind of simple, but there was, for example, a, a song that they would sing when they were in boat and when they were um, going out for like months. And yeah, so I, I, I thought it was amazing how much I got to learn <laughs> about yeah. this before creating it. Yeah, It's really interesting. So in, in terms of trying to simulate the experience, part of it, I imagine, is uh, part of it is holding your breath, right? But part of it also has to be visibility, right? How well you can see under the water, the visibility conditions of the water. Then like you, the other piece, like you said, knowing what to look for and knowing the difference between the types of pearls. So yeah, can you speak more to that? How do you create that in a VR experience? Um, well, there are of course limitations. I think when you are in this blue um, environment and you can barely see the the ground and it's kind of like through a fog you realize how um how scary it is actually to be so deep underwater sure. um and um and maybe i know this feeling especially because i also dive scuba right. dive not yeah. dive <laughs> i always used to look up just to remind myself that there is still the the, so the yeah I would have never like I've I've been in a situation and while diving where it was very foggy and you couldn't really see where it was up and down and I would never do that to a person that's absolutely scary. <laughs> that was kind of what I was getting because I've also I'm not like a diver per se but I've dived enough times that uh, and I really enjoy it and I can definitely mm. vouch for what you're saying when visibility is low it's totally scary especially if you don't if you're not like a very experienced diver so uh but the other thing about modern diving is that you have goggles which i'm sure that these ancient pearl divers did not have goggles right how did they have some kind of eye protection or no 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 eye protection they had a nose clip hmm. and they had weights so oh. the weights would help them to sink really deeply very quickly uh, and then they had a sort of basket um, on them, if I remember all of this correctly. Basically, they would sink really quickly. So I'm, I'm just thinking of how that would be for your eardrums as well. So they were attached to a rope. The weights would basically uh, help them to sink really quickly. They'd get to the bottom. Um, they'd collect as many pearlizers as possible into that pouch that they had attached to them. And then they would pull on that rope that um, they were attached to and someone would actually drag them up. So this was a um, teamwork, but uh, yeah, but the harder part was definitely being underwater. Well, that makes sense. First of all, just, just using weights to go down, that's already pretty sketchy. <laughs> 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 right? 
the whole thing sounds pretty sketchy. Like you pretty much have to really practice that, that each pearl dive, because that is already like a death defying thing. Get, and then to get up, you have a rope and they pull you up. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. So you don't, you don't actually swim up on your own. So how deep are they diving? Um, up to 40 meters. 40 meters. Wow. So that's like as far as you're going to go normally. That's the deepest you'll go diving with an oxygen tank, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have your oxygen tank. Uh, like if you think about it with your oxygen tank, I think if you have like an hour left on it, then by the time you're at 40 meters, it's 10 minutes or something like this because the oxygen is so compressed. So I cannot even imagine what that would do to the oxygen within your lungs. Mm. So you really would only have a couple of minutes down there. And um, it makes complete sense that you'd have to get down really quickly and up and that you probably wouldn't have enough oxygen or energy to, to swim up again with the weights on. Mm. Mm. I'm, I'm just assuming right now, but you know, looking at your work, your work is about simulation, emotive response, and higher sense stimulation. So basically trying to convey all these things are quite relevant, I, I should think, when you're trying to, when you're creating yeah. this type of a VR experience, trying to understand what it was like, especially because it's not something you can easily replicate in real life. In, the, in 2021, not many people in their right mind are going to be doing, you know, free, free pearl diving. I'm sure there's some crazy people out there doing it, but... Not like it's supposed to be a sport. <laughs> Free diving. Um, so speaking of your exhibitions, I was wondering, could you tell us more about Great Times, the exhibition you presented at the Fire Station Museum? So I, um, I was lucky to be one of the, um, well, lucky, yes, um, to be one of the artists in residence um, at the fire station. And uh, we happened to be the batch that fell within the corona pandemic. So. We started with Studio Access and to all the resources and then we didn't anymore. <laughs> and others, like others, artists and residents had nine months. We had uh, longer than that just because we had that interruption. So I, I uh, originally had planned a VR piece for that exhibition, but because of Corona, um, there are a lot of limitations on, uh, on presenting VR work right now. The main limitation being is that no one in their right mind, including myself, would want to share a VR headset with another person, knowing the risk that they're, you know, germs. <laughs> so um, while we're all wearing masks, we definitely don't want to have uh, someone else's <laughs> headset on our face. So um, for this exhibition, I, um, I looked at interactivity in an analog way. So um, when working with VR and immersive environments, interactivity is really interesting, right? It engages the person and it, it kind of creates that emotional engagement. So for this exhibition, interactivity for me was still very important, but um, I translated it into an analog way by creating, um, creating a sliding puzzle. So um, I was interested in a poem and um, the different perspectives of that poem because that was the theme also that we were given it was literature and um, that poem is by Rumi and it exists in Persian and in English but the English translation is more an interpretation rather than actual translation that completely negates um, references to the Middle East and Islam so the original Persian poem by Rumi, by Rumi would talk about how um, it's it's a really popular poem. You can see it on you can see the English translation on Instagram a lot. So it's this beyond wrongdoing and right doing. There's a desert. There's a there's a field 
So beyond wrongdoing and right doing, there's a field, I'll meet you there. So this is the English translation. But then the original actually talks about a desert plain and it talks about Islam and, and um, Kafir, which is the Arabic word for non-belief uh, or Kufr. Not very good in Arabic. <laughs> um, so I contrasted the Persian translation with, um, with the English, sorry, the Persian original with the English translation. And the English translation was essentially a sliding puzzle where people could move around the words. I was thinking, okay, with hand sanitizer, that would still work, but people were still not allowed to touch this during the exhibition. <laughs> so there goes the interactivity. So uh, working with interactivity during COVID times is really tough. Um, so what I'm looking at right now with a colleague of mine is actually um, using like a, a connect or deaf, deaf sensor to kind of record the emotions of a user so that we can have interactivity without having to touch things. So hopefully that'll be the future. In your work, you talk about synesthesia. Is that, am I saying it correctly? Synesthesia. Wow. What does that mean to you? Like to uh, achieve synesthesia in AR, VR work? What is, what is synesthesia and how do you achieve that in this format? Synesthesia is essentially when, um, for example, you're able to experience something through several senses or when your senses are a little bit mixed up. So for example, um, a good example of synesthesia is when a person is able to see music or see audio. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So, and this is a very rare uh, thing. Not, not a lot of people exist who are able to do that. Um, there are some videos on YouTube where, um, where a musician actually plays music and then she overlaid colors that she sees when she hears that music just to kind of um, allow someone to empathize with how she sees or experiences the world. So again, because VR is such a great medium to um, to allow you to experience things that you aren't usually able to experience. So synesthesia is one of those, of course. And in, um, in that specific project, basically what, um, what I built is I created an environment where um, a microphone would record your voice. And if you were singing, it would trigger a visual experience as well of uh, different colored and patterns which resemble the northern lights so you had the northern lights basically streaming across the sky in, in different sizes and colors depending on your pitch and volume and this again kind of relates back to me being very interested in uh, what are the opportunities to uh, create these peak emotional experiences, you know what I mean? So the more senses you stimulate, you're able to stimulate the more emotionally engaged you are with the content. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's uh, very interesting. What are other examples of synesthesia? So you mentioned you can hear music and associate that with color. Such an interesting idea that you mix up uh, senses. What are other senses that get mixed up that you can play with? Um, the color and audio, that was the most common, I believe. Um, there was something around text and color as well, but I don't remember exactly the details of that. You can embed into text, you can embed emotion or a, a subtextual meaning. An example is um, there's a comic, it's Venom and Carnage. But basically it's really, it's really su subtle but brilliant every single time that Venom is talking. It's like the text is sort of black and sort of, and it has a kind of broken rough edge to it. So you immediately understand that he's talking in a dark way. He's probably rasping, right? 
And then the hero talks in a straightforward way, you know, with the traditional bubbles. And then there's another character, Carnage. It's only thoughts. And all of the, it's thought bubbles and they're red and they're broken and there's kind of a violence to the, to the typography. So you get the sense that somehow he's telepathically communicating in this very sinister way. So it's, it's, that to me is a fascinating use of kind of adding subtext. So what kind of program did you have? And I was wondering how would the pitch affect the color or the way the Northern Lights looked? So, um, so I build in Unity. It's a really versatile tool. The possibilities are amazing. And um, it's also why I like teaching it to students. And basically you are able, um, so the VR headset that I used was the HTC Vive, which has an inbuilt microphone and the microphone basically records or hears your voice. And then I just um, defined it. I basically decided to define certain um, thresholds at which um, a certain pitch would mean a certain color or a certain volume would mean a certain size in the uh, Northern Lights. Um, I, and I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a true synesthesia experience. Um, the idea was um, to just simulate um, that feeling where um, where one sense, which in this case is auditory, and you hear yourself singing, um, also stimulates other senses. And uh, and I don't have synesthesia, so I'm not able to really clearly say what a person with synesthesia sees. I, I only related it back from the YouTube videos that I was looking at to kind of get an understanding for the experience. And she saw colors, so I tried to reflect colors, and, um, and I think I went one step further and added volume to it. <laughs> So ARBR in this case allows you to let people experience synesthesia, which to your point is rare. Not many people actually yeah. have the condition. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, very yeah. powerful, uh, powerful use of the technology. Now, let's, I want to follow up on a question about unity. So you, cause we've talked about this offline and, um, so you teach VR to students at Northwestern Qatar using Unity as your tool. What's that like? How well are they picking it up? Are they creating interesting, cool work? What's the learning curve like? Uh, you know, that's, I'd like to ask you more about that. What's your experience been like with that? Like I said, Unity is immensely powerful as a tool. There are a lot of capabilities. I have worked with it a couple of years and I would by no means say that I'm close to understanding or knowing or being able to use all of its, um, like all it, it in its entirety, basically. So then my goal is actually to just kind of uh, break down that in initial intimidation that a student would have with the software and its complexity and, uh, and raise curiosity. Because if you're curious about something and if you're interested in something, then even past my class, you'd be um, inspired to continue looking and continue researching. And one of the other reasons I, I like teaching Unity is because there is so much content available online that if you are interested and if you have overcome that initial intimidation, you can confidently and definitely continue exploring it on your own and taking it into your own direction and practice. For me and my own, teaching i would say that's probably the highest ideal of of digital media of teaching digital media design is 
inspiring students to take it further, right? To become interest driven, to ignite a yeah. certain curiosity after which they go beyond what anything you could have introduced in the course of the class. So that's got to be the key, especially in, in nowadays, how we learn software is so much of it is self directed yep. research, right? Plus it constantly changes, right? So you right. need to stay up to date with it anyway. In other words, you have to teach students how to stay curious and to confront that sometimes there's a hesitation when you're like, oh God, do I really want to learn, you know, watch this long technical <laughs> tutorial right now? You know, you, there's a fatigue that can set in where you're like, I'm content with the body of knowledge I have. I do not feel like learning this thing right now. You know, and then you have to somehow confront that and overcome it to the point where you hopefully develop a certain plasticity or malleability uh, whereby you're open to constantly learning. And that's a practice skill, would you say? Yeah, I would definitely agree. I, I believe that um, it takes a bit of resilience to pick it up and then to maintain that sort of learning pr process or path. Yeah, a certain masochism I, too, like, you know, you have... <laughs> Yeah. All, the, all the students I've ever known, including students that were my colleagues at, at Indiana University, I was a master's student and stuff, that have really gotten to that mass, to that expert level in the profession, have that grittiness that they were, <laughs> you know, and that's the masochism piece I'm talking about. Just the ability to just sit there and learn something technical and difficult and spending the whole night in the lab staring at tutorials and trying it. And you might work on something for 24 to 48 hours only to have it not work. I know. <laughs> oh, the feeling because you, you, you've internalized this and you practice it. I truly believe that uh, technology picks up on your energy. If you're extremely mm. frustrated, stressed and under time pressure, mm. nothing works. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. To the point of the blue screen of death. I've had it all, especially when I was working on my thesis. <laughs> There's also something positive that can come from time pressure too, though, right? Like mm. when you think about game jams or just being up against a really inflexible deadline that I do understand what you're saying where everything can and will go wrong, especially in live demos. You're always going to encounter a problem you have never seen before and will happen at the most embarrassing moment possible. That's just a rule. Absolutely. Beyond that, there's this, um, I think you can get, you can almost go into a superhuman mode when you're up against an inflexible deadline and things can click. And, and that's a kind of, that's the concept of flow state. Maybe it's also adrenaline too, but does that happen to you? You know, you're up against a deadline and you're going to make it one way or the other. You're going to finish the thing. Um, has, have you experienced that? I've never experienced where everything just falls into place okay. and it's perfectly, uh, never. Okay. I have always experienced, however, where last minute mm. something goes wrong and I need to troubleshoot mm, for yeah. crazy amounts of time. So okay. my my man mantra is um, always give yourself extra time to troubleshoot. And it's also, uh, that's another thing I try to tell my students, I'm like, uh, I understand that technology never does what you want it to and that's completely part of the process and um and that it is exactly that grit to then say okay this did not work 
I'm going to try again. <laughs> Absolutely. And this, uh, the concept of bugs and bug triage. And I think that's a really interesting, I think a really healthy, important mindset to have of, it comes from project management, actually, the concept of agile and scrum methodology is applicable, obviously, to software production, but it's applicable to your life at large as well. Yeah. Um, but yes, this idea of nothing's ever really done. You can always find another bug. And just when you're closing in on something being finished, five new bugs appear and you just have to keep at it. But there's also the concept of triaging the bugs, too, which, in other words, if you have 10 bugs, they're not of equal severity, right? You have one, two, or three <clears throat> that you have to stop everything and work on, but you may have one or two bugs that are of such low priority that they will never get fixed. In other words, you will, you will just like make a note of it and then you will archive it forever. And it will just be a, a part, it'll be a flaw in the piece that you only you know about, but it, go, it goes in the piece because it's just too low priority against all the other priorities, against the time you have to finish it, right? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I think uh, I think learning um, to develop for VR and AR was like my own personal therapy. I used to be a perfectionist. Mm. I am not anymore. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so um, so it's it has helped me to make peace with this eighty percent is perfect. Yeah, yeah, or or the yeah. idea of releasing a um, a live beta, right? Releasing something knowing it's not perfect, but also knowing that this is an ongoing process, and that there will be yeah. emergent bugs and problems once people start testing it and using it. So at some point, you you just can't wait for perfection. It will never happen. Right. So 80% yeah. certainly is good enough to put it, to put the headset on people and start testing it. So imagine trying to convey this to students who are, who are used to just uh, what I'm uh, seeing or understanding is that they're used to uh, delivering really perfect projects. Ah. And then, um, and then when something fails, they're um, devastated. What I'm hoping they know by now, by the end of the semester, when actually it's, um, if you can show me that you've gone through the process and I, I can see that you've experimented and you've tried and you, you've worked through it and you've shown me the stages, then even if the final product doesn't work, which can happen because of a huge bug, it has happened to me too, where I need to start from scratch because something just didn't do what it's supposed to. There's a fatal flaw. <laughs> a fatal flaw. Yeah. It's like the Death Star. The Death Star has a fatal flaw in its core, you know? I go back to the drawing board. That's a very interesting thing um, to think about from the perspective of digital media and learning or, or educating people, 21st century education, that trying to convey this concept that uh, it's okay that it's not perfect. In fact, that's an unattainable ideal teaching process. It's actually yeah. a pretty, I think, fairly advanced concept. And so you're, you're really trying to implement that through teaching Unity in your class? Yeah, uh, whether I'm successful or not, you have to ask my students. Um, but yeah, so for example, um, the in one of the classes, the final project that they're um, submitting is actually just a prototype and it's an MVP, it's a minimum viable prototype. Um, and it's something that if they decided that they were passionate about it, uh, they could continue working on and eventually submit it. So for example, Eric Espik, who you interviewed before, 
um, he came into the class to talk about the Dharma Lab and how the Dharma Lab could actually support students if they wanted to take their project further into submitting for the Unity for Humanity grant. So they are creating prototypes, students are creating prototypes for the Unity for Humanity grant. They're doing something with Unity that has a positive impact on the world, society. Um, and, um, and even though it's a very basic prototype at that point, if they wanted to continue working with it, they'd have resources at Northwestern University that could then support them to take it further. Speaking of higher education, I think your experiences are very unique because you worked both in industry and higher ed. And so I was wondering, um, how different have your experiences been and what's it like working in VR in both sectors? It's um, very different when you're, um, when you're working within the production line, you know what I mean? When you're um, creating for a marketing purpose or something like this. Everything that I was doing um, in my professional work was with the intention to increase visibility of a brand and increase acquisitions. So it's a very different way of thinking and working. It was creative in its own sense that you were creative in trying to um, solve or, or deal with the problems that you had, which is how do I make sure that uh, we get more eyes on this than the competition and how do we make sure that this actually translates into uh, conversions or sales? So it's a different, a very different way of thinking about a problem and 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 um, and working with the technology. Whereas in in my current position or work, I'm I'm allowed to experiment a lot more. There's a lot more freedom to experiment. There's a lot more um, forgiveness <laughs> because I'm my own uh, I'm my own uh, judge, right? So um, if something doesn't work the way I want it to, then that's completely okay. I'll just go ahead and try it differently, right? It's it's a very different process and experimentation. I feel like is more appreciated. Mm. In, in education than maybe in the industry. Not that the industry doesn't realize how important experimentation is and that it is a way to attain innovation, and, but they just don't have the bandwidth or the money or the support to be able to handle failures as much, right? So I couldn't agree more because I've also worked in industry and in academia, and I think that's very well put what you said. In industry, there's just a tremendous pressure on you because things have to make money, right? Yeah. There's, there's a very strict goal and you can't spend a lot unless you're Google, maybe, but even they want to make money. But they have maybe if you're an incredibly wealthy company, maybe you can have a few employees who just do pure fun R&D or whatever. But for the most part, that's not the case, right? There's a, there's a lot of pressure on people. Academia, on the other hand, like you said, you have an enormous pressure you put on yourself, right? So you're your mm -hmm. own boss and you have to have a discussion with yourself about whether or not you're doing well enough, you know, doing your own sort of employee employer evaluation. And, um, and you, you have to find that motivation. The other thing is, I think you, it's, it's, there's a whole, you have a lot of responsibility to find money when you're working in education, right? Whereas if you're in it working for a company that typically comes easy, right? The company has the money. So they're ready to throw yeah. the money at it. So you don't even really think about that, but there's a lot less freedom per se, you know? So with the freedom of academia also comes the pressure of finding the funding for your project. So interestingly enough, um, because I was working with such um, emergent technologies, like uh, all the projects that I was always proposing, um, 
were a little bit out there and uh, maybe beyond comfort for some of my bosses. <laughs> so I always, I always had to pitch for funds, even when I was working in the industry. And that is um, something I'm very grateful for that I had to learn that very quickly because then that helps me right now. Right. So I, I look at it two ways. Um, if no one wants to fund you, then probably what you're, what you're doing um, isn't valuable. Right. So, uh, so, or you haven't been able to present it as that, but it makes me always think about who, um, who could this, um, who could benefit from this? How could this be taken further? How could this be interesting um, in a long term and in a bigger project and where it influences more people? So I said, it was really interesting that you said that industry gives you a lot less freedom. And so my question was, what looks like a safer VR project compared to a more experimental VR project? So the one of the VR projects that um, that we did um, when I was at Vodafone was creating an environment that um, sort of um, visualized the brand um, and the and the target audience that we were um, speaking to at the moment with a specific product. And then of course, um, in that VR experience, you also have to see or visualize the product or have some sort of product placement. So you can see where um, you already have a lot of kind of constraints within which you're working. And on top of that, um, it's also at the time, maybe, maybe the problem was at the time that we still had a very basic understanding, we we're just starting out with virtual reality so we're just exploring so really the work was just trying to use the tool more maybe than experimenting with it so that might also be just my own personal experience at the time we were just starting out with it uh something that i um that i did in my own creative work that was purely inspired by um let's see where this can take us was actually based on um it was with Two Northwestern students, and it was uh, based on a quote by a music psychologist, where he had said that he associated classical music with peak emotional experiences, and that in his research, these peak emotional experiences were actually when there was a sudden shift in harmony or texture in the music. So then, the question that we were interested in was um, if sudden shifts in harmony or texture in the music can create peak emotional experiences, how is it when you have a shift in directionality of sound? Because 3D environment, um, you also have 3D sound, right? You have three, you have sound all around you, essentially. And we were interested how it would be if you had sudden shifts and changes of the direction, the sound maybe come from here, from there, or from over there. So um, we were really lucky we got to uh, record uh, music a classical concert by the Qatar Philharmonic Orchestra so we placed the 360 camera on stage and when you put on the headset you would basically be encircled by musicians and have the conductor right in front of you just going um, we we used this footage to create two environments one in which you heard the um, the music as it was recorded and in another where we actually um, manipulated the direction of the sound so you would have the same piece coming sometimes with more emphasis from different directions and we were interested to see if that uh, created higher emotional engagement and um, we checked in two ways we used biofeedback so we um, 
check their galvanic skin response. So um, did they actually, which is very sensitive. So we had first like a baseline of how, how was their galvanic skin response with nothing. And then when they were in the experience and uh, we had a questionnaire where we basically asked how involved they feel with the musical piece. And in both uh, cases, in the galvanic skin response and the questionnaire, we saw that when there was uh, shifts in direction, people actually, even though they didn't necessarily notice them consciously, that they did have a higher involvement or higher engagement with the music. Essentially, in, in future, that might have applications in the industry, right? If we're thinking of, um, like, during COVID last year, I attended my first concert in VR. So that was something that wasn't even uh, conceivable at the time when I was working on this project. But if you think about it, if I wanted to um, have my concerts in future in VR and I was creating this almost unnoticeable shift in directionality, I could actually create um, more intensive experiences for people. Eventually it might have an uh, application, but at the time, obviously it was a completely pure um, passion project. Let's see where this is going. <laughs>